You're listening to audio from Kingsway Christian Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit kingswaychurch.org. Well, good morning. It's so good to be here with you today. My name is Matt Nickerson, and if you're visiting with us, welcome to Kingsway. If you're watching at home online, welcome to Kingsway. If this is further on down the road, welcome to Kingsway. I think you get the point. Welcome to Kingsway. We're glad you're here. We are in week two of our series called Asking for a Friend. We asked you guys, what are some hard questions you would like to know the answers to with the Bible has to say? And that's how we got to this week. Can I lose my salvation? We'll get to that in just a moment. Years ago, I saw this meme, which later is now turned into a t-shirt you can actually buy on Amazon. I don't recommend it, but it has a picture of a couch. And it says, like, above the couch, it says, I found Jesus. He was behind the sofa the entire time. That's about the response I got last service. So... That'll go well with today's message. Hopefully a little bit better. You're like, come on, this is a serious question. I know, I know. But before I can explain the question, can I lose my salvation? We have to start really where we started last week. The way these messages, even though they were each individual, they really played off each other well. So last week we answered the question, what happens when I die? And we looked at this passage in Genesis, sorry, chapter two, verse 17, where God tells Adam, if you eat of this one tree, you will certainly die. Now, Here's the thing. We know that that tree is not literally in your backyard today. You can't go find that tree. But that tree is representative of something we call sin. Sin. And sin literally means to miss the mark. It's a sign of disobedience. And we can be disobedient in multiple ways. We can be actively disobedient. We can literally go against something God told us to do or to not do, right? We can also be passively disobedient by just not engaging with the things of God and who God is and what God wants us to do. And the problem, as we said last week, is our entire world is really being run by sin. Every area of our life and our facets of our lives are affected deeply by sin. And so what we then said was, the next point, the big point of all last week was the saved will end up going to heaven for eternal life and the condemned will go to hell for eternal condemnation. And we talked a little bit about heaven and hell, but not a lot. We did a podcast. If you go to our podcast page and go to more to be said, I did a little more on heaven and a little more on hell. But even then, there's still so much more to be said. And there's a lot of, a lot of this stuff I won't know for sure until I get there. And then I'll be glad to tell you all about it. It'll just be too late. So I'm doing the best that I can. But that leads us to today's question. Can I lose my salvation? If the saved go to heaven and the condemned go to hell, then can I lose my salvation? Now, this is a very real and relevant question. Maybe for you personally, you've been stuck in a sin pattern for some time. And maybe you've literally wondered to yourself, is God done with me? You know, that last night when I did that thing or I told my spouse I'd never again, or maybe I promised God in this retreat that I would never ever again, and I did, is God done with me? Or maybe like many nowadays, maybe you have a child or a grandchild who you raised in the faith, but they've walked away from their faith and you're wondering for them, have they lost their salvation? And maybe there's a question for some of you if you're visiting with us today, I don't even know what salvation is or what it means which is a good question because we probably need to start there. Before we could talk about losing something, let's talk about what that thing is that we're losing. So first, let's start with this. Who needs saved? That's the first question. And like last service, literally, when I read the question out loud, there were people all over the room going, rah, 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 rah. they were answering the question. I know, I know. But everybody in the room may not have the same answer you have. So let's all look at one passage that tells us this. Romans chapter three, verse 23 says this. For Say it with me, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
There's a little bit of encouragement in this, right? It's like misery loves company. Well, everybody you know, everybody you've ever met is a sinner. There's only been one person in all of history who succeeded not to sin, and his name was Jesus. So all of us have sinned. Now, what we tend to do today, and we're not unique in this, most cultures and times do this, we tend to categorize our sins and our sinners. We tend to put really big sins in one bucket and smaller sins in another bucket as if they have a different effect. But they don't have a different effect. All have sinned, and sin is a really big deal. All sin is a really big deal. And so we tend to look at our kids or the people that we like, and we tend to ask questions like, well, do you think when we get to heaven one day, do you think we'll be more surprised by who is in that we didn't think would be in or who's not in that we thought for sure would be in? And the reason we do this is because we tend to think of our kids and our friends and our, the people we like, like people in our neighborhood or people in our group, right, of friends, that they're good people. Excuse me. And so therefore, since they're good people, good people go to heaven. But that's not the biblical picture. The biblical picture is all of us are sinners and all of us are not good. Only God is good. In fact, Jesus is approached by a wealthy man at one point and he says, good teacher. And then he goes on and asks his questions. What must I do to receive eternal life? Now, Jesus looks at him and he says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. And that's important. Jesus isn't saying, I'm not God. He's actually hinting at, you're onto something here, buddy. Do you realize what you're onto? But the whole idea here is we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of perfection. We've all failed to be obedient to God. Now, once we have that level playing ground, this doesn't mean that Saddam Hussein is worse than us. He definitely is a greater sinner than we are. But the consequence is the same for all of us. So, What exactly, when we are saved, are we saved from? We're saved from what? Well, let's take a look at one passage. There's many that deal with this, but Romans chapter two, verse five says this, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. And this is the great news. This is a spot where it doesn't matter who I think should get in or who I don't think should get in. God's judgment is going to be perfect on the issue. And I use this passage a lot to comfort people. When people come to me and they've recently lost a loved one and they're unsure of whether or not that person ever received Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And I say to them, the good news is the one who's making the final decision, he's not me and he's not you. Because if it were me, there are plenty of people that I would be mad at that God would deem so they should be in. And I'm like, yeah, I haven't, I haven't forgiven them or I haven't let that go yet. And there's plenty of people that, that won't get in. And maybe I'm like, yeah, but they're really, I really like them though, God. So the good news is everybody who gets in will get in because God says they deserve to get in. Are you with me? That's a good thing. That should encourage you because if we trust God, he won't make a bad decision. So when you lose a loved one, you can have peace and comfort in your heart because you're trusting the one who's making the final decision and it's not based off your parameters for judging. But what is it we're being saved from? Let's come back to the question we're asking. And what Paul tells us here is wrath. The wrath of God is being stored up for the day of God's wrath, which is worse because it's not just one little day of wrath. It's all the days of wrath stored up for one particular day when God brings to bear the final judgment, which is what we talked about last week. And what is adding up that wrath for us is our own stubbornness and unrepentant heart. 
It's the fact that we don't just sin occasionally. It's that we have a sin nature. It's what the Bible calls us, or a sin pattern. We sin over and over and over again. And we have a problem because the sin in us keeps us stubbornly refusing to turn to God. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. This wrath thing is not something we like to think about. It's not something we like to talk about. We like to talk about God as nice and good and kind and fun and loving and merciful, and he is all of those things, but he is also wrathful. Why is he wrathful? Because he's holy and he's just. Because God hates sin. Let me read a passage, uh, a, a quote from one of my Bible college scholars, a guy named Jack Cottrell, in the, his book, The Faith Once and for All. It says this, it is important to see behind the specific outpourings of divine wrath and recognize that the burning fire of wrath is a constant aspect of God's nature, a part of his very essence. Because he is holy, it is impossible for God not to be wrathful in the presence of sin. Wrath is the natural and inevitable and eternal recoil of the all-holy God against all that is unholy. In other words, wrath is also a part of God's personality, part of his character, just like mercy and love and grace and kindness and joy and all these other things. But there's a piece of this that I really want to get to. If we could spend another whole message on the idea of holiness, I've done entire sermons on this. It's such a great concept. The idea of holy is that it means to be set apart. And we're told in the Bible that God is holy, holy, holy. There is no one holy like him. In fact, one of my favorite passages that describes God's holiness is in the book of Isaiah. And it says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts and my ways are not your ways. For as sure as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my thoughts and my ways above yours. In other words, what God is trying to establish for us is that he doesn't think about situations in life and the world like we do. And he is so set apart from us that when we sin against him, we aren't just doing a little thing, we're doing a really big thing. If that terrifies you, it should get your attention. But realize this, God's wrath is satisfied in a moment in time. It's satisfied in Jesus Christ. See, that very passage where God is saying, my ways are not your ways, my thoughts are not your thoughts, that same passage, go read it for yourself. It's in the book of Isaiah, ah, I think it's chapter 58. I think it's chapter 58, I'm probably wrong. It's in the 50s. Anyway, in that passage, if you read the entire chapter, what God is saying is he's actually talking about forgiveness. And he's actually saying, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. As sure as the heavens are higher than the earth, I am a forgiving God. So even though wrath and justice has to be a part of sin, the way that God dealt with sin is in his son, Jesus Christ. Which leads us to the question, saved by what? What saves us? So we're saved from God's wrath because of our sin and unrepentant heart, but we're saved by Jesus. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter two, verse eight. He says, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. There's so much to unpack here, but it is by grace. Grace is not mercy. Mercy is if you go to court and you did something wrong and the judge is standing there and he decides not to hand out quite the punishment that you earned. He decides to go easy on you. He shows you a little mercy. He may even erase the whole thing this time, but that's mercy. Grace is literally unmerited favor. Unmerited favor. Unmerited means you didn't earn it. 
Notice how Paul's trying to hammer this home here. This is not from yourselves. It is not by works. What else does he need to say? You can't do enough good things to earn the grace of God. God's grace is literally a gift of unmerited favor. His face is toward you. He is for you. He desires good things for you. He wants to see you flourish and grow and thrive and be healthy. He wants to provide and protect. He wants to be a good, good father to you, but not because you outperformed someone else. It's because he loves you. And the way that we got here is because he satisfied his wrath when on the cross, Jesus was crucified. In fact, Isaiah 53 in many ways reads as if God himself is the one punishing Jesus on our behalf. Now he's doing it through the Romans, but it's to satisfy his wrath. But then Paul goes on, what are we saved for? What is the purpose of our salvation? The very next verse, in verse 10, Paul says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And what we're starting to see here is, while we cannot be saved by what we do, God intended for what we do to do something. The apostle James deals with this tension He talks about this in James. He says, um, your faith without works is dead. He says, some of you may say to me, I have great faith. He says, fine, show me your faith by what you do. Saying you have faith means nothing. Perhaps you grew up in a church where they asked you at some point to raise your hand and pray a prayer or come forward or maybe even to get baptized. And it might have been a powerful moment for you. But if that's all it was, was a powerful moment that allowed you then to walk away from God, to disengage from it completely, then you missed the point. Baptism without faith, it's nothing more than taking a bath. It's nothing at all. Raising your hand and praying a prayer without faith, it means nothing at all. It is the faith played out in everyday life that makes a difference. When God saved you, he intended to do things in you, through you. He intended for you to be holy as he is holy. He intended for you to partner with him in doing things in this world. And I love this because the idea of a handiwork is God is crafting and fashioning something powerful out of your life. So what then? What if I have not been God's handiwork? What if my life doesn't look like it's transformed? What if my faith is just a faith to myself? Then what? Does it mean I'm not saved? What if I've walked away from God and I've stumbled into sin and a pattern of sin? Can I lose my salvation? Now I think we're finally ready to answer this question. And it's certainly not an easy question. There are a number of texts that deal with this. And there's a lot of confusion in the world and in the church world today. I don't have another hour or two to do a seminar for you. But what I want to do is take a couple of the really hard texts. We don't have time for all of them. I just want to take a couple of the really hard texts. I want to show you those texts. I want to talk through those texts and tell you what I do with those texts. You are more than allowed to disagree with me. That's fine. But if you disagree with me, don't let it be because of your opinion Let it be because you went back to the text itself and you read it for yourself and you studied it for yourself, okay? Let's look at one of the really hard texts now and figure out what do we do with this question, can I lose my salvation? We're gonna start in Hebrews chapter six, verse four. It says this, it is impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, 
who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again and subjecting him to public disgrace. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6 in the NIV. First, let us not rush past this passage. Let's not hurry up and go past it because this is an extremely important passage. It's terrifying. But part of what is broken about what I'm doing right here and showing you only this is it's out of context. You may notice today, if you go to Facebook or go to Instagram or go to Twitter or go to TikTok or whatever your social media of choice is, and you just copy and paste these verses and put them out there, you could read these verses out of context and you could walk away with an impression that in context, you may not get the same impression. In fact, if you really want context, go back and start at the beginning of Hebrews 5. You probably should go back to chapter 1, but I'll summarize a little bit for you. And you just start at Hebrews 5 and read all the way through verse 11. I've only shown you through verse 6. And what you would find at the beginning of Hebrews is we have to ask a certain set of questions. Next year, we're going to work on trying to help you understand how to read your Bible in context. Because this happens way too much. We take a verse, we take a section of verses, we put them on Facebook, and we say, look, this is what God is like. And if you really want to know what God is like, you got to read all the verses. <laughs> you got to put them all together, and you got to figure out what to do with them. And when you're reading a passage of the Bible, you got to ask a question. Well, who wrote this letter? In this situation, we don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews, so I can't tell you who wrote it. Then you have to ask a question, who are they writing to? This one's not real hard, because the name of the book gives it away a little bit. So most likely, he's either writing to Gentile Christians or he's writing to Hebrew Christians. Who do we think he's writing to? Hebrew Christians. That's why we named it Hebrews. It has nothing to do with coffee, folks. Okay. Nobody? Come on. Throw me a bone here. I know this is serious. I'm trying to break the levity a little bit. Hebrews means he's writing to Jewish people who've converted to Christianity. Now, there are definitely going to be some Gentiles, and among them, because almost every New Testament church, everyone we know of, had Gentile believers somewhere in the body. However, the majority of the texts that he's dealing with are Old Testament texts. That's why if you start at the beginning of Hebrews, you th see things like Jesus is greater than the angels, and he's greater than Moses, and he's greater than Abraham, and he's greater than the sacrificial lambs, and he's greater than the day of atonement, and he's like the mountain, except for this mountain is better. They talk about the mountain that Moses went up to to meet with God. And he keeps going through all these Old Testament stories, Old Testament texts. We even get the heroes of the faith through all these Old Testament heroes and prophets of the faith that we look at and celebrate and learn from. So, that tells us something. We don't know who exactly the name of the author is, but it tells us the people that he's writing to. Once we know that, we can start to ask the question, why is he writing the book? What does he mean? What is he trying to communicate? Well, what's going on at this period of time is persecution is intense. Depending on when you place the writing of the book, either in the early 60s AD or possibly late 60s AD, would depend on whether we're talking about Nero or, or, or some of the other leaders, Titus or one of the other leaders in ancient Rome, but they are terribly persecuted Christians. Christians are used as candles to light Nero's party about the time that I believe Hebrews was written. Christians are being shoved into caskets and buried alive for their faith in Jesus Christ. And the reason that the writer of Hebrews is writing the book is because he's encouraging them, don't walk away from Jesus. Where are you going to go? 
You're going to go back to the Old Testament high priest? Jesus is a greater high priest who understands our sin and is able to carry us to the Father so we can approach the throne of grace with confidence. You're going to go back to the Old Testament sacrifice and do the same thing week after week after week? For what purpose? To what end? We all know that the blood of goats and sheep can do nothing to change our sin. Why would you not go to the great lamb, the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world? When we start to understand who the author is, who he's writing to, what the issue he's dealing with, then we can start to ask the question, what do I do with what they're saying? What do I do with this text right here? I believe that what the writer is trying to do is he's trying to say to the people, if you have come to Jesus Christ and you have experienced the gift of the Holy Spirit, the power of the church, being the church together, where else are you going to go and find this? If you were to walk away from this and go back to sacrificing sheep, how in the world would you ever come back? If this wasn't good enough for you the first time, why would it be good enough for you the second time? But we have to deal with this word right here, impossible. Anytime you're translating an ancient language into a modern day language, you have to understand it has multiple meanings in its culture that it may not have in our culture. The word impossible is literally the word adunatas. And it can literally mean unable or impossible. And if that's what Hebrews 6 means, then what it means is if you walk away from Jesus, it will literally be impossible. You can never come back. And many people translate it that way. I take the second meaning of the word. Powerless to do on your own, meaning it's extremely difficult. You can only do it with God. Now, why do I take that approach? And by the way, the writer of Hebrews has died 2,000 years ago, give or take. Like, I can't go ask him which one he meant when he wrote it. But let me show you a passage I think backs up why I feel this way. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is approached by the rich young ruler. I referred to him earlier. And he's asked some questions about what he has to do to receive an eternal life. And Jesus looks at him and everybody else and says, you know, it's harder for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, that tiny little thing on the tip of a needle. It's harder for a rich, or sorry, a camel to do that than for a rich person to get into heaven. I think I said that backwards. It's harder for a rich person to get into heaven than a camel to pass through the eye of a needle. That's what I meant to say. And this is important because it's so mind-boggling. Because even the disciples who hear Jesus say that go, wow, we're all trying to be rich. And Jesus is going, yeah, you don't want that. Well, why wouldn't I want that? Because it'll be harder for you to get to heaven. Well, why will it be harder for me? Because you'll start trusting in your money to save you. And your money can't save you because you can't buy me love. You can't, you can't get in. Jesus says it this way. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, well, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And this word here is the exact same word used in Hebrews. It's impossible for man to do this. Once you have been united with Christ and you've turned away from him, it's impossible to come back. But nothing is impossible for God. This is why parents, you should never stop praying. Grandparents, don't give up hope. Because your hope was never in them your hope was in God changing their heart, softening them, breaking them, wooing them, winning them, chasing them. But there's a warning that we cannot ignore in this. It's a terrifying warning. Be careful. If I could summarize everything, I would summarize it in this way. Our salvation is bound up in our faith. 
So when we ask the question, can I lose my salvation? You were never saved by works in the first place. You don't become unsaved by works in the second place. Your sinning in the first place was not the thing that got you saved. So your sinning in the second place isn't the thing that gets you saved. Your salvation is bound up in your faith, but your faith is moving you somewhere. You are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works that God prepared in advance for you to do. This is the tension that every scholar, every pastor, every preacher, every theologian feels, everybody. Because the text implies on the one hand, take sin seriously, don't mess around with this stuff. And on the other hand, but God's grace is bigger. In fact, Paul goes so far in Romans 5 and say, you can never out-sin grace. The more you sin, the greater grace becomes. And you go, wow, this is fantastic. Paul goes, no, that doesn't mean sin more. It means praise God and quit sinning. And that's the tension that we all feel. Let's deal with one more with our little bit of time left. Later in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews says this, if we deliberately keep on sinning, After we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. And this kind of verse is terrifying, isn't it? There were years I wouldn't even allow myself to read this verse because I had deliberate sin in my life. All right. Everybody raise your hand if you have deliberately sinned since you came to Jesus. Don't raise your hand. It was just a joke. (laughs) The same James who says that we will know our faith by our works also says, we all stumble at many times and in many ways. I think there's two major things we need to take away from this text. Number one, I put Hebrews 10 in the same box. I put Hebrews 6. Who is the author? Who is he writing to? What's the issue he's dealing with? Why is he saying it? What's he trying to say? So number one, I think he's trying to say, if you read it in context, if we deliberately keep on sinning, where are you going to go to have your sin removed? Are you going to go back and offer a sheep or a lamb? You're going to show up on the great day of atonement? What's it going to do? We've had Jesus Christ. He is the last sacrifice. That's why shortly after the book of Hebrews was written, within a few years or so, God came in in 70 AD and tore the temple down. And there has not been a temple in Israel. There have not been sacrifices since then because there is no sacrifice left you could do. What could you possibly do to remove sin? Jesus has already removed it. I think that's the context. But I also think there's a profound warning and I don't want you to miss it. And the profound warning is not if I've ever deliberately sinned, therefore I have lost my salvation because I don't know about you. I don't know any Christians who've never deliberately sinned. Have you ever sensed God telling you not to say something mean to your spouse, but you said it anyway? Have you ever heard God tell you to stop gossiping, but you did it anyway, or lusting, but you did it anyway, or agree, but you did it anyway, or selfish, but you did it anyway? If that's the case, I don't know anybody who would be in heaven. Paul says, I'm the chief of sinners. When I, the thing I want to do, I don't do, and the thing I don't want to do, I do, and I'm, who's going to save me from this life of sin and death, he says in Romans 7. But praise be to God, Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ 
Jesus. So what I do with this on the one hand is I put it in context and hear that the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't go back to sacrifices. Jesus is your only hope. But on the other hand, I want to take his warning very, very seriously. Because sin is deceptive and destructive. It's like a bait on a hook. I took my boys fishing for the first time ever and we went to a friend who has a pond in their backyard and there's like tons and tons of fish in there. And I don't know that I could tell all the fish apart, but I'm pretty sure we caught the same fish four times. <laughs> like same size, same shape, same everything. It's got holes in its mouth. You're like, buddy, you're never gonna figure this out, are you? And you think to yourself, it's like a bug's life, right? And it's like, but it's so pretty. Now I'm joking again to make light of something that sin is not funny. Why are we so attracted to the same things? And like a bait on a hook, it looks so good and pleasing, but it can't satisfy, it's not real. And you bite it and then it grabs you and it hooks you and it leads you to your death and destruction. That's what sin does. Sin is so serious that it killed God's son. Like, don't play around with this stuff because you have grace. My last pastor used to say, Sometimes you get what you want, but then when you want, gets you. And that's what sin does to all of us. So I'm gonna go back a slide because I skipped on an accident, but this is what I call believing loyalty. Believing loyalty. God intends for you to continue to believe. And God intends for you to be loyal to him. If we had another hour, we could talk about the concept of election because depending on your background, I know that's a big deal for some of you. But think about this. Israel was elect in that they were the nation chosen, elected by God. And yet, some of them were removed after multiple warnings because they refused to return to him. But God always kept a remnant to pass forward a time to get us to Jesus because Jesus was always the point. This is what Paul's trying to get to in Romans 9 through 11 when he's warning us today and saying, look, if God is willing to take some in Israel and remove them because they refuse, they harden their heart and they're unrepentant and they refuse to come to Christ, like, don't you think that he might do the same to you? So don't Take grace as an arrogant license to sin. Hang on. But remember this now. Jump back to where we were. You were saved by grace through faith. So remain in God's grace by faith. Are you with me? You're like, you still didn't answer the question, Pastor. Well, I answered it to the clarity that we get in Scripture. This is a tension in scripture, and I don't want to relieve the tension, but I want to give you full confidence and assurance of your faith and what your faith in the finished work of Jesus has accomplished for you. So if you are stumbling in sin, if you have fallen away, come back, return, repent, and do it now. Don't wait a day or a week or a month and get hooked and led to your death. I think the book of Jude says it best. And the book of Jude is one chapter. So you can't say Jude chapter one. It's just Jude, which is always confusing to me. But Jude verse 20 says this. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love. Do you see this? Keep yourself there. 
Cut whatever you got to cut out of your life. Add whatever you got to add in your life, but keep yourself there. Stay there, because there is your salvation. There is your hope. There is your eternity. There is your confidence. There is your trust. There is your salvation. So keep yourselves in God's loves as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Verse 22, notice this. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. Man, what a great passage. But think about this. Part of what the writer of Jude, Jude is trying to get to here. He's saying, oh my goodness, hate sin so much. Hate sin so much that you even stay away from the stained clothes of corruption. Like, I don't even want to think about what he's implying there. You could probably come up with some ideas in your mind. He's got some thoughts in his head. He's saying, stay away from this. However, be merciful to those who are struggling. So if your children or your grandchildren, you're not sure where they are in the faith, be merciful to those who doubt. But look, if you know others who are right, they're dancing on a flame and they're on the brink of walking away from Christ, snatch them from the fire. Do you see that? Like, this is serious stuff. But then the same Jude who wrote all of that in verses 20 to 23 and verse 24 and 25, he says this, to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory and majesty and power and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. And all God's people said, amen. He is able to keep you from stumbling. He is able. He is mighty to save. So hang on to Jesus because he is hanging on to you. Now, let me bring this home for a minute. I was walking down the hallway. I'd just taken my kids to their classes and um, I got handed this. It just says, Pastor Matt. And, and then it says, it's a birthday party. And I thought, oh man, there's a really good chance when I get invited to a birthday party of somebody that I just don't get to make it. And then it said, I can't wait to be baptized. I hope you could come and celebrate with me. November the 7th, that's next Sunday, at 11 a.m., Kenzie and Kyler's baptism. Next week, I got handed this. I don't even know who Kenzie or Kyler is. I'm thinking it was Kyler who handed me this, and they're going to get baptized next Sunday. Yeah. Please type and praise God for that. You get to come be a part of the party too now. Congratulations. Welcome. We're glad you're going to be here. This is powerful because what we're doing in baptism is we're uniting with Christ. We're surrendering in our body what we've already committed to God in our hearts and in our minds. Does that make sense? This is why Paul says in Romans chapter six, he says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? In other words, you can't out-sin grace. Should we keep sinning? They're like, yes, more sin. Paul's like, what are you, crazy? That's actually what by no means means. It's, it, it translated literally as by no means, but the implication is, what? Are you nuts? We are those who have died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly also be united with him in a resurrection 
like his. Don't miss what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, when, the reason we baptize by immersion and not by sprinkling is because it's a picture of the baptism of Jesus. When Jesus died, he went down into the belly of the earth. He was buried in a grave, and then he was brought out of that grave when he resurrected to life. When you go down into the water, the water is like a watery grave, and the old you is left behind. And the reason we only get baptized this way one time is because your baptism is effective for all of your sins, past, present, and future. Because your salvation is not bound up in how many times do you get baptized. Your salvation is bound up in your faith. As I said earlier, baptism without faith is nothing more than a bathtub. It's not effective for anything. But your baptism combined with faith has the ability to give you a clean conscience before God. So when Satan tells you you're a liar and you're a sinner and you're evil, you can look back at the day you marked your salvation and say, no, I remember the day and the moment that I was united with Christ. And that, my friends, is good news. Yeah. So I want to invite you into that story. I know maybe you didn't come here expecting to make a decision, but maybe God's been speaking to you and maybe it's been weeks. If you have never surrendered your life to Christ, you've never been united with him in baptism. I want to call you to do that. And we could talk with you about scheduling it, whether it's today or next week or what day works, making sure you understand what you're doing. But I don't want to miss a moment. If you're here in this place and you feel God tugging on your heart, why don't you just raise your hand right now? We got a team of people. They're walking around the room upstairs and downstairs and they're ready to come to you and just hand you a card. Just raise them high enough for, for, for them to see. Keep them up long enough for them to get there. And they will come to you and hand you a card and they'll get some information from you and they'll just say, hey, this is what it means to surrender to Christ. And we wanna help you with that. After the service, we had two people come up to one of our Connect members and say, I didn't wanna raise my hand, but we're ready to get baptized. So next week, in addition to Kenzie and Kyler, we've got two others, I think, that will be baptized. Yeah. So I don't know the timing on some of those things yet. I may be wrong about it being next week, but listen, it's, it's never too late. And listen, I want to close with this one last call because I remember profound moments in my life where God called me out of sin and into him again. Maybe you are feeling the weight of something. You know you're stuck in a pattern and you need to get out. You don't have to tell anybody to get out of that. You can right now in your heart repent before Jesus and start living a new life. But let me just challenge you for a minute. If you have found yourself repenting of the same thing two and three and four and five and eight and 10 times and it's not stopping, it's time to invite the church into the process. We're not gonna bring you up on stage and make you confess to everybody, but we need to get some new patterns and some new groups and some new resources in your life to break the habit so you could start a new habit. Listen, if that's you, you could text connect anytime, 317-565-4911 and just there's a form that will come to you. Just fill out the form and say, you know what? Pastor's Matt sermon convicted me. I need help. We'll call you. You don't have to put it in the form. We'll call you and just see how we can come alongside you. I only beg you, don't go another day deceived by sin. Can I pray over you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come into your presence now to worship you, we just thank you, God, for your goodness and faithfulness. And I just ask that you would continue, God, to move in our hearts. Set us free, God, right now. I pray for the person right now who's struggling with sin and feels bound up, trapped, took the bait and is on the hook and doesn't know how to get out. God, I pray that you would set them free today. 
God, I pray for the person who's never surrendered their life to you and they're afraid. They don't even know what it means. So they don't want to raise their hand. They don't want to reach out. That's too scary. But God, I pray for them right now that they would still find freedom in Jesus Christ, that they'd be bold enough to take a step of faith and that we'd spend eternity together thanking you for this moment. And God, we love you. In all things, may you be praised in us. In Jesus' name, all God's people said. 